Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about an unhinged meeting. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So this week, a Texas House report was released on the Uvalde massacre at Robb Elementary that killed 19 fourth graders and two teachers. The report detailed a lot of mistakes and downright inaction on the part of law enforcement at the scene. Here are some key takeaways. The initial response to the shooting was huge, with as many as 400 law enforcement personnel, both state and federal, getting to the scene quickly and heavily armed. However, there was inaction for over an hour that led to even more bloodshed. The report states, quote, at Robb Elementary, law enforcement responders failed to adhere to their active shooter training, and they failed to prioritize saving the lives of innocent victims over their own safety. The report cast the blame of all law enforcement agencies that responded to the scene, not just the local police. The report also states that there was a lockdown fatigue, and that was why the initial response lacked urgency. The school district had 50 lockdown alarms in the last five months leading up to the massacre due to law enforcement chasing suspected human traffickers in the area. The report stated that it, quote, diluted the significance of alerts and dampened everyone's readiness to act. Sorry, I couldn't help but laugh at that one. Yeah, it's it's interesting that I I don't know. I, I just it's almost unbelievable. Anyways, um. Building security wasn't where it was supposed to be either. The door the shooter used to get into the building was not locked like it should have been. The report also suggested that the door to one of the classrooms the shooter entered was probably not locked. The report stated that the school had a, quote, culture of noncompliance, which turned out to be fatal. Fuck off. Yeah, I know. The shooter displayed many hints of violence in the year leading up to the shooting. He even carried around a dead cat and was nicknamed the school shooter on an online platform. He asked his family to help him buy guns, to which they refused. That being said, the report did state that the shooter had no previous criminal history and that the people who knew the warning signals were private individuals. The Border Patrol was the largest agency to show up to the shooting, supplying about 149 officials to the scene. They were the ones that finally breached the door to take down the gunmen. However, the Border Patrol officers were among those waiting to take action. The commander of the Border Patrol tactical team actually waited for a bulletproof shield and working master key for a door to the classrooms that may not have even been needed, the report stated. What's more, none of the Border Patrol agents in the final breach were wearing body cams, and the agency did not give any public testimony in the hearings in the Texas House and Senate. Terrell, this is an interesting report. What are your reactions? Um, a lot to unpack (laughs) yeah and i mean i obviously gave some comments during it right um it's it's sad that the one person who's actually advocating for and speaking towards accountability is the father of the shooter who has no remorse or no grievance for his son and has been very upfront and honest of yes put him in prison for life he did atrocities this is not the son i raised all of those pieces meanwhile the government that's supposed to represent the people and being being there to protect the people who lost children that day are busy finding reasons to not blame themselves saying that doors weren't locked the school lacked compliance oh well we're always in the area because we suspect people crossing the border illegally thank you governor abbott 
So, of course, we don't take these seriously all the time. And it's like, cut the shit. And I don't swear on this pod a lot. So you can tell I'm angry. But cut the shit. Like, you all were afraid of for your lives because the shooter had a semi-automatic weapon that you know you knew would fire at such a velocity that no matter what firepower you had, no matter what protection you had, your chances of survival were minimal. And instead of putting your life on the line for a, a cluster of children, you hid. And now you're looking to your government, all your paid politicians from this extremist party who want to point the finger at a teacher for not locking a door rather than just say the truth. Americans don't need semi-automatic guns because if the argument's always going to be from the right that, well, we just need to start arming more good people, good people are also afraid of the gun. They're not afraid of the shooter. They weren't afraid of this boy. They were afraid of the semi-automatic weapon that genuinely would have killed them. Change one thing and we won't have this problem. Yeah, this report's really interesting because it does highlight... um, if we're not talking about an overarching problem, it does highlight probably the biggest problem in this case, which was law enforcement not doing something much sooner. Yeah. Um, you know, you show up with 400 people and then do nothing for over an hour, you know, that is just going to maximize carnage for the shooter. I feel like this report then kind of goes through some interesting um, points that I think really create permission structures for the wrong kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, the doors being unlocked, the school itself having a culture of non-compliance. I think the issue that I have with this kind of stuff, oh yeah, and like lockdown fatigue and all that shit. A big issue that I have with this is you're giving it a weird permission structure that, oh, this school it's actually on the school because they should be following all these uh, codes and regulations or whatever that the schools have or whatever when it comes to locking down and school shooters, but we shouldn't have school shooters in the first place. Yeah. We shouldn't have to lock down schools like this in the first place, but we live in a country that does. And this report gives a permission structure for the police to kind of skate, skate by and all those other agencies escape by a little bit. It gives a permission structure that guns are okay. And it's okay if, if we have to sacrifice some children for them. But one good point to also highlight and, and thank you for mentioning that because it, it's important If you want to cast blame on the school or cast blame on teachers for not following protocol specifically, it is antithetical to not also blame cops. Um, Why do I cops and border control? Why do I mention them specifically in this space? We know from reporting from children who survived this massacre that cops were screaming out, tell us if you're safe, let us know where you are, which is against protocol in these situations. And because of that, We know for a fact that at least two children were shot and killed because they felt more comfortable or more safe speaking to um, or trying to get the cops to find them. We also know that they didn't follow protocol in speaking with the chief of police. They didn't follow protocol in working in collaboration with border control. So if you really want to do this tit for tat and and kind of find all of these loopholes or spaces to say, well, the cops were the only problem. This was a systematic issue that involved the school too. It's still egregious to ignore the fact that law enforcement, the thing that every conservative says is supposed to save us in this space, systematically failed. And rather than allowing for them to be held accountable, 
Once again, an extremist party is trying to play into a false reality that does not fit the truth or or the state of being with their own narrative. And we as a people need to be more vigilant and more thoughtful in calling that out. Yeah, I mean, it's like the other stuff, like it would be so much different if this report came out after the police actually did their jobs in the situation. It would be way different because, okay, if the if law enforcement had actually gotten there and gone in right away, stopped the shooter, and only maybe a couple kids died versus 20, I mean, then maybe it is those two kids could have survived if a door is unlocked. But we're not even there because law enforcement didn't do their job at all. It would have happened anyways, whether there was a door unlocked or not. It would have happened anyways because law enforcement sat there and did nothing for over an hour. All right, moving on. So this week, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia once again took down Biden's climate and economic agenda that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wanted to have a vote on before the August recess. Manchin hate me for talking about this story. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Manchin had previously signaled some levels of support for the bill, but after inflation was shown to go up 9.1% last month, Manchin claimed that the government cannot add more, quote, fuel to this inflation fire. The issue with this rhetoric and reasoning from Manchin, which you'll probably have some words from me in a sec, is that this is a, a reconciliation bill, and by default, it has to pay for itself to be passed. Manchin himself even got the bill to decrease the federal deficit by creating taxes on the rich, which makes the inflation argument he's making even weaker. Mm. This also derailed the U.S. effort to ratify a global tax on multinational corporations to stop them from finding ways to escape paying their fair share of taxes. Terrell... I was very frustrated when I saw this headline, especially <laughs> so because, was I. Yes, especially because Manchin had already indicated his support for this bill and then proceeded to spend literally months negotiating what would be in it, only to back away once again. But so, there's one big thing that is left out of the context here, and okay, this is okay. why I get angry. Okay. This is also why I yelled at Bernie Sanders, per usual. Um, <laughs> Bernie did blow up on him. I saw that. And he was wrong, per usual. Well, I want you to tell me, what's this context? So right before Manchin's, and I think we talked about this off air, um, right before Manchin's decision came out, the U.S. government got one of the worst inflation reports it has gotten since the start of the craze around recession and all of those pieces. We we did not expect for prices to go up 9.1% in June. Yes. And we know going into these negotiations, that has been Manchin's heart line. What I think is being left out of that whole conversation is we're spending so much time talking about the 9.1%, but economists had a very um, detailed report on where they think all of this is stemming from and how, as we've talked about on this podcast multiple times, this is such a multifaceted issue. But one space that they did highlight is government spending during the pandemic and how quick globally we as um, or governmental entities responded to and infuse cash in and they they do credit a lot of what we're seeing right now as a, a a rebounce of that so i do think it's important to hear that space from mansion i do think it makes sense as much as i despise him because we could have just gotten this done but it makes sense why he would go 180 out of nowhere, because uh, I mean, Chuck Schumer released a statement earlier today and was very transparent that he has known Senator Manchin for a long time. They view each other as friends. They do communicate. And he does believe that Manchin entered this with a good faith. But seeing a report like that and knowing that government spending and, and the actions that we've been taking 
have and may have contributed to a recession that we're about to walk into. I get it. I hate it, but I get it. I couple points for me. First of all, yes, we're in a time of decently high inflation and 9.1% is definitely a shocking number, especially when we expected it to go down a little bit. It is a or at least say consistent with the 6% that we have been seeing for the last few months. Uh, this is more like 8%, but well, it was six in April, I think. I don't know, but it, so it, um, it is a lagging indicator and mm-hmm. we have seen gas prices going down um, quite a bit in some places, not every place, but they have been going down Idaho, for no. like a month straight. So like if there's a month, I don't know, it'd be really interesting to see what July's inflation indicator is. I would suspect it goes down, but by how much, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So there's that information that we won't know until August. I think... To say that I did am not like as surprised that Mansion took a backflip because of these inflation numbers. I, I mean, I it it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me when I think about him and his voters. Yeah, it does. But I'm not I'm not gonna really buy the fact that a government spending bill in this instance is actually gonna add that much to inflation. I don't think it will. It's fair. If you're taking down the the federal deficit by passing a spending bill, I just don't see it as a big inflationary factor right now. I think that's fair. I again, I do not agree with his choice, but I I think the willingness to and maybe I should have presented it more this way. I think the willingness to attack Mansion and individuals like Senator Sanders to jump into the Dino argument that. He's nothing more than a dino. He doesn't belong in this caucus. When in all when in all honesty, the real dino in this conversation is Bernie Sanders. He is not a Democrat. Maybe it's both. I'm yeah, I don't I do I don't think know. Manchin here's, is a Democrat. Here's I what genuinely do. I will say something just a nineties Democrat. I will say something that is frustrating to me is that I was really looking forward to some of this like yeah. build back better plan, especially the climate provisions and now that's probably not going to happen before the midterms. And that's really upsetting to me because the midterms could spell the end for any climate action in years. True. And the way I've been looking at this is like almost every senator was on board except Manchin. And Manchin was on board. Like he really was and truly... then he backflipped. But that's the thing is Manchin's been the one that's derailed all this. Yeah. And, and it hasn't really been Bernie. So like I get... I get the frustration there, but Bernie was going to vote for this, just like Manchin said he would. And then Manchin's the one that backflipped. Yeah, but Bernie also is the one who has used his platform to manipulate the House to get certain bills not passed and also has been a stickler stickler on the other side to say, well, here's my line. And it's like, I just have a I have a bias here. This I, is not a secret. That's like, fair. Bernie Sanders, <laughs> you're not the majority leader. You don't get to draw a line for the party and then expect the party to just jump on your bandwagon. Even if a majority of them agree with you, you are complicating the system by being the one who's going out and being on these talk shows and trying to aggressively force Senator Manchin to not be a part of the Democratic Party anymore, essentially giving the keys to the Senate to Mitch McConnell. But I do think the Democrats have an opportunity here, and this is how I think we should really close this. Okay. Manchin is the problem, just like you mentioned. Hmm. We know that President Biden will use his executive authority the way that he feels comfortable and should and what he's hearing from both his attorney general, but um, the White House uh, counsel on what he can do within his means that won't face aggressive challenges with the Supreme Court. 
And now the Democrats have an opportunity to really batter in the message. You need to drown out Manchin's voice. If you want this big reconciliation bill, we can afford to lose him. We can allow him to vote the way that he should. We don't need to be a party like Mitch McConnell's party where he goes out and stands at a podium and says, this is how I'm going to vote. And that tells the rest of his caucus, this is exactly how you vote. We've yeah. always supposed, or the Democrats have always been a party where you vote how you should. You vote to protect yourself so they keep the majority. This is just how politics works. It's also a sign of a healthy party. Yes. The Democratic Party right now is a healthy party. The problem is, is that we have, have people like Bernie Sanders. Well, actually, I, I, I think the problem more is that the Republican Party is so absolutely unhealthy that yeah, it's for a point for the Democratic Party to be somewhat not as banded together right now is it's a difficult time for that. That's mm-hmm. all. But in normal times, you know, that's very healthy for a party. But all of this to say, I do think that the Democrats have an opportunity to take the 2018 approach. Um, that the House took of Nancy Pelosi telling the caucus, attack me. If that's what's going to get you the win and give me the speaker's gavel, you can run counter to me as Nancy Pelosi. And I am I know Manchin won't like that, but I do think Schumer has an opportunity now to start painting a better picture and helping more voters understand why the midterms matter this November and how pull, an easy pull like Pennsylvania can completely eradicate any point that Manchin has in these negotiations because there's your 50th vote. Now the Democrats have a 51 majority. If you really want to complain about um, cinema, who has not been an issue, even though Bernie Sanders can't keep her name out of his mouth, then pick up another state like making sure that we don't lose Georgia or picking up Wisconsin where Ron Johnson should not be the favorite (laughs) Um, or Iowa, where you have a Senator who is, one foot out of the grave and also might've tried to steal the democracy. Like this is an opportunity that I really challenge the Democrats to be thoughtful of and think, how do we successfully paint Manchin as the reason for voters to turn out? Because I do think that would be a winning message instead of us having a conversation about, well, president Biden isn't doing enough or the Democrats never get action done. Here's the moment. And I do think Manchin gave them that whether thoughtfully or not thoughtfully. Yeah, and this all goes to say that like I'm incredibly frustrated by Mansion, and especially that with this, um, there's still a health care bill on the on the table. Um, he hasn't taken that off. We'll see what happens with that. That healthcare would lower drug, drug prices. prices, please, <laughs> please at least do that. Um, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like I should stipulate that like, although Mansion frustrates me, yeah, the goal more is to like just elect more Democrats versus trying to like unelect Joe Manchin because like he's in a state that the state's going to be like that no matter what you're either getting a Republican or you're getting Joe Manchin and I would rather have him same so anyways let's check out the international folk continuing our coverage on the Ukraine and Russian war Russian President Vladimir Putin travels to your travels to Iran um, to engage with new outlets that will hopefully combat the growing isolation that he's facing from the West. Iran's supreme leader took this opportunity to relish Moscow um, for taking the helm before the West could, and ultimately potentially, initiate a war themselves. Really speaking to all of the nonsense and non-reality that Putin has been spouting for his invasion of Ukraine. 
Um, this complete absence of reality is important to understand as this is his justification, but also this is his way of making light of the fact that his intelligent intelligence agencies have completely underestimated the toll that this war would have on the country, on the world, and the globe. Many suspect that this change in diplomacy towards Iran will be very strategic for Moscow um, as they're starting to weather a lot of those economic sanctions that were recently reported haven't had their full effect. Additionally, in this visit, we are seeing the complexity of international relations as the Turkish President Erdogan um, was also in attendance as a unique middleman between Ukraine and Moscow, helping to maintain some communication channels as a member of NATO. Turkey has been a leading supplier of military arsonary to Ukraine as they've been combating Russian forces. However, we also see this weird relationship between Erdogan and Putin, um, especially when it comes to Syria, as they are once again at odds um, with that civil war, but talking about potential peace agreements moving forward. Meanwhile, Ukraine has seen a renewed success on the ground as the United States long-range artillery weapons, the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, or HIMARS, um, have finally been supplied to the region in recent weeks. I think they have around 12. Essentially, these weapons allow Ukrainian forces to target critical Russian command and logistics centers with satellite-guided rockets ranging more than 40 miles. Russian forces have made clear dismantling these weapons are a strategic priority, once again highlighting the miscalculation by Kremlin in taking up this aggression and the weakness of their own technology compared to that of the West. We at Dangerous Likely will continue to follow the conflict taking place in Ukraine and update you as we learn more. Check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for updates throughout the week. Other major stories from around the globe, former United Kingdom finance minister Rishi Sunak leads the narrowing prime minister race out of the UK at 40 degrees Celsius or roughly 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Monday, July 4th was the hottest day recorded in the United Kingdom. This comes with record heat wave across the planet, sparking wildfires in France and Spain. After protests lead to the former president of Sri Lanka fleeing the country, his party is struggling to elect a new leader as Sri Lankans vow to oppose the six-time prime minister who is currently acting as president. And the United States Senate begins the process of approving Sweden and Finland's membership into NATO as 18 House Republicans, I'm sure you can name them all, in a symbolic vote from the chamber. And we'll be right back. And we're back. So it's been a while since we talked about the January 6th hearings. Let's give a quick recap from the last hearing and discuss what it all means. First, the last hearing featured a lot of highlighting the fact that Trump sent a tweet that said it was, quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election and said there would be a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Then he added, quote, be there. It will be wild. Why this tweet was important was because it was seen as a true call to action from pro-Trump groups such as the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. It also generated lots of action amongst far right wingers like Alex Jones. The hearing even featured testimony from a guy that was actually an administrator of the online forum where QAnon got its start. And he corroborated the fact 
that this was a call to action, he also decided to go to the Capitol on January 6th when Trump sent out that tweet. It also came out that Trump's unexpected call to march to the Capitol was actually planned. The committee backed that info up with texts and emails from rally organizers and a tweet that Trump never sent out that called for a march to the Capitol afterwards. It was once again highlighted how several GOP House members were featured in Trump's election scheme. They met with Trump and tried to provide false evidence of voter fraud. These members also sought pardons for their actions. Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone interviewed with the January 6th committee, and that was shown at this hearing. Cipollone was another person that told the president that there was no evidence that the election was stolen. The committee has some in-person witnesses that were radicalized by right-wing groups, and they explained how Trump played a key role in their own radicalization and on January 6th. There are a couple of witness, witnesses from the Oath Keepers that said they were just following Trump's orders to go to the Capitol. Trump's former campaign manager, Brad Parscale, said in some text messages that Trump's rhetoric, rhetoric killed someone, but you know nowadays he's all in for Trump again. Lastly, there were six witnesses that detailed an unhinged Oval Office meeting in December of 2020. Apparently, the meeting was a massive argument between people who knew the stolen election claims were baseless and those who believed it to be true or at least acted that way to, I don't know, watch the world burn or something. <laughs> Apparently, even the Overstock CEO was there. And yes, he was on the side that the election was stolen. Apparently, everybody was screaming at each other. General Michael Flynn wanted to invoke martial law over this false claim of the election being stolen. And the idea of an executive order that would seize and inspect voting machines was also born from this meeting. Terrell, so much to unpack. What's your initial reaction to all this? I don't know if I feel comfortable knowing that Donald J. Trump or at least General Flynn and I have both watched House of Cards. Because like that is, <laughs> that is the ploy that they have taken. <laughs> I like that show on TV, not in real life. Not in real life. Yeah. But I do remember watching it and saying, oh, this is insane that someone who never is elected by a majority of people still somehow became president. And then when he was destined to lose his presidency, used the idea of a threat to seize voting machines and just declare himself winner. And lo and behold, here we are. Um, no, I... I had the fortunality, as our listeners know, um, to be on vacation when this hearing, these hearings were happening and be both in New Orleans or at home at the time. Um, so while I wasn't able to be a part of this podcast last week, I was able to watch the hearings in their entirety from Michigan. And I mean, it was jaw dropping and yeah. And I don't say that lightly. I We were one yes man away from American democracy truly collapsing. Yeah. All it took was one Secret Service agent to say, okay, Mr. President, and he could have been at the Capitol and who knows what that could have led to. Um, all, it could, all it could have taken was him promising Mike Pence, after I finish my second term, I will bestow upon you this presidency. And Mike Pence being so selfish that he says, okay, and he could have, devalidated all of the or decertified all of the election results. Like we genuinely were one or two people away from complete and total chaos. And that's not to give gravitas or grace to Mike Pence or the secret service or literally anyone in that administration because they were all complacent in the actions that got us there. But it's terrifying to realize that all the things we've said off air, all the things we've said on air about this administration turned out to genuinely be true. And the fact that, so many people 
had this blind faith towards a man who show who's shown how easily he will turn on people who um, turn on his first attorney general because they elected a special counsel as they were required to by law who tweeted out that Mike Pence was being a coward as people were shouting, hang Mike Pence or kill him who has had an on and off relationship with everyone in his inner circle because once or twice they have gone against him. Um, Yeah. Terrifying. Terrifying. Absolutely. Batshit insane. Um, you know, I don't know. I've probably said this before, but I, uh, didn't really know what to expect from these hearings. I thought we had a pretty good picture of what happened. Um, I think these hearings have given us an even more detailed and inward look of what actually happened. And I think they've been proving all along what some of us have kind of suspected that this was planned, that it was in malicious intent. It was. I mean, they've done a great job about continuously highlighting how Trump knew that the election wasn't stolen. People around him told him. People with credibility about how the election ran told him. Many, many times. A lot of his own advisors told him. And he still went with the several wackos that he had around him, including himself, to be honest. And was actively trying to appoint his own special counsels and remove Bill Barr as AG so he could get someone in there. He had a genuine faith, which I feel like the January 6th committee should investigate this more, that even at the worst case scenario, we would go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would rule in his favor. So Mm -hmm. there's just such a clear systematic approach here that can't be ignored, but also a clear understanding of how detrimental that administration was to all of our institutions. Like we already knew the executive branch was going to be a hot mess for whoever were to take it over. But you now get to see as we are fearful that the house might flip to Republicans this after the midterms. Um, And they've already made clear that their first priority is to investigate the committee for the January 6th commission. Um, You have Senators who are actively being investigated by Georgia, thank you, Senator Lindsey Graham, for trying to overturn and put up fake electors to give Trump Georgia. So it runs deep. You just see that genuinely. And then on the counter side, Supreme Court, which is just a toxic wasteland for all of us, you know that Clarence Thomas was actively trying to make the Supreme Court hear this case and essentially do what they did with George W. Bush. So it's hard to not feel this deep seated dread listening to these hearings, just realizing that we are genuinely a democracy in name only. If we really want to make a dino um, conversation because (laughs) our institutions are failed. They have all failed. Yeah. I, (laughs) I just, it, it, we have a chance to rebound and we'll see what happens in the next few months. I mean, I genuinely just don't know. I don't really know what Merrick Garland's thinking. I don't, I don't know how many people are taking this. It seems like the polling coming out of these January 6th hearings are, are pretty good. We've even on the some, Republican side, yeah, we've seen some upticks in conservatives being feeling that um, Trump should be convicted. Yeah. Which that's, that's great. Um, you know, I listening to like Dan Pfeiffer, a democratic strategist, I mean, 
he always says the one person you have to convince is the guy running the justice department. And to an extent, I think, yes. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're able to convince some folks who maybe voted for Trump or, or, you know, were part of that, um, coalition that went for Trump and you're convincing some of them that Trump's actually does not have the best interest of America in mind, does not have the best interest of democracy in mind. I think, I think there's some success there too. I mean, I don't know if it's enough and I don't know how much it's going to matter in the long run. Yeah. Um, But you know, I think the committee's done a good job displaying the case and the facts and presenting it to us in a way that I think is digestible is um, relatively, I guess, digestible. Uh, So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how they wrap this up because there's not too many hearings left. I don't think this was the seventh hearing. We don't know anymore. Um, Initially. Yes, there was only going to be eight or nine somewhere in that range. Um, But with, the interviews from Cassidy Hutchinson, Patsy Poloni. Now there's conversations about whether or not, um, oh God, I forgot his name. Whoever runs Breitbart. I've erased him from my memory. And now Steve I have Bannon? that one. Now there's conversations of he, if he will um, speak to the committee. So there he's in a trial right now. Yes. For contempt of Congress. Cause yep. he's Criminal an idiot. Um, but that's all to say, we don't actually know anymore because the committee's even saying that, thanks to the hero heroicism of um, the staffer Hutchinson, the committee is getting new information and more people are cooperating some of her points, but on the reverse end of it, we now have knowledge that the secret service deleted all of their text messages from January 5th and January 6th, which exposes once again, this deeper level of concern (laughs) that, no part of the American government was truly acting in the interest of the country. It was all in allegiance to and in service to um, Donald Trump. Yeah. Or some form of that. Right. I, uh, I don't know if there's like that much else to say. The next hearing is going to be prime time. Next hearing is going to be prime time. And Um, I believe by the time you hear this pod, it'll be tonight. Yeah. And I mean, I think there are a few other points to bring up to MSNBC just released today a memo from Attorney General Merrick Garland from dating back on May 25th, 2022, that furthers a policy that was initiated through former Attorney General Bill Barr, um, limiting investigations into political candidates. Um, and this kind of circles back once again to a conversation we've had of America's in a weird space right now of always talking about and speaking towards what it means to be a democracy, why you don't jail your political opponents, why you don't investigate your political opponents. We've got to get past that when someone's actually committed crimes. I mean, we should have gotten past it when Comey decided that he could stand in primetime and say that they were reinvestigating Hillary Clinton for a set of emails that they got only to send a memo after and say, actually, we didn't see anything in those emails. The case is still closed. Like we've already violated this. And I know that the reason the Department of Justice is moving forward with this policy is because of that specific incident. But once that Pandora's box was open, I don't understand how it got closed before all the other ones that we're currently looking through. 
Democrats. I mean, Bill Barr is the one who fight. Bill Barr is the one who put the <laughs> policy in. It wasn't it wasn't even Democrat. It was a Republican. Um, but I think that brings up the point that you highlighted. So if we know that there's a very slim chance Donald Trump might be investigated, slimmer than we would look, like to look, admit. I'm not going to hold my breath for it, but I'm not going to put that to rest until I actually see Merrick Garland come out and say I'm not doing it. But if it doesn't, or if we if we live in an imagination in a world where there's a very slim chance that that happens, sure. what is the new purpose of these committees? Like if we've had conversations about does it matter educating the public and we all kind of landed on, well, yes, the Republican Party is a hopeless cause in my personal opinion. So we got to go for Merrick Garland. If Merrick Garland's saying, well, well Donald Trump might run for president, we can't investigate him. Who's left? Like, what What do we do with this information now? How do we exist as a country knowing that a former president actively tried to get rid of democracy? Look, I don't know. But I will say this. I think it is, I think it is important that even if nothing comes of these hearings, that we have that information. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important in a democracy um, that the public has the right to know what was happening on that day in, in situations like these. And so if nothing else, the committee serves as facilitating us, giving us the actual factual information of what happened around the insurrection. Even if Garland doesn't pursue it as a case in the justice department, even if Trump ends up winning um, 2024 and we revert back to whatever the fuck. <laughs> um, even if all that stuff happens, it is important that we at least had this, like saw this information it is important. I, I, even if it doesn't matter, I truly think it's important for the American public to at least have access to it. I agree. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I have is no idea our- what's going to happen in midterms. Apparently, Trump wants to announce this fall, which I kind of He's not hope. going to announce that he's running for president. I I will stand by that one. And I know I've been oh, wrong I, on this podcast I, a few times, but I stand by... I mean, I don't think... I mean, if he was a smart political candidate, I don't think he would. I don't even think it's about that. I think financially, if he's smart, he has to have at least one or two financial I people. I think he just wants to be back in the center of attention real bad. And also, if he announces that he runs, it does kind of further lead the department of justice by like, yep, we really truly cannot do anything, which is yes. fair, but oh, the way he's currently using the funds that he's getting through his campaign run amok very quickly. If he announces that he is going to run for president again, yes, because he will violate several things, which he's still currently being investigated for in the Southern district, which is a whole nother story for another time. So that's why I genuinely think there are enough eyes on him legally that he will not run just to like throw in my predictions there i i don't know but i think the point that i'm trying to make is i have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow so we'll see what happens with these committees and maybe something will and we'll all be surprised who knows um one can hope i guess yeah i mean there should there should be a level of accountability and we have yet to see it and i really hope that these committee hearings and this committee is a conduit for that accountability um but We'll see what happens. Anyways, we'll be right back. Dangerously likely.
Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dangerously underscore likely or email us at dangerouslylikely at gmail.com. There's also Facebook, Twitter, wherever you can think of us, we are probably there. Um, Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening for notifications of our new episodes. Also, maybe drop a like or two, a couple ratings. Um, But recognizing that I think every American is feeling the pressure of constant stories around recessions, um, the now announcement from two major companies, Goldman Sachs and Apple, that they're going to slow their recruitment processes um, and employment statuses. Um, Caleb, what if we just take a moment instead of a tangent to kind of like air out how we're feeling there? <laughs> take us in a moment. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm not like... I mean, all signs point to recession, but I wonder how much that is um, because of actual actions. And don't get me wrong, if there is a recession, it will be a lot, a lot of it will be because of actual actions of, I think, mostly the Fed. Yeah. But um, but I, I, I can't help but wonder how much of this is just almost the same thing with inflation. Um, not that there wasn't actual actions that caused inflation because there was a lot. But inflation, and I think recession falls into this trap too, Mm -hmm. is when it starts circulating around people's heads and people start thinking more and more that there's going to be one or that there's going to be more inflation, it's kind of a never-ending cycle. Yeah. And so I wonder how much an inflation might happen because of that versus like the collective (laughs) brain power going towards this um, versus actual actions by the Fed um, or anything else. I, so I'm not like entirely convinced. I have some friends who are so convinced that they're not even trying to convince anyone. They just actually believe that there is going to be a big recession and like very soon. And I'm just not there. If it happens, it happens. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm not saying it is either. And I'm not saying it's going to be crazy bad. Like some people have already started believing. I'm not saying it's going to be not bad. I, I'm just, I, I just don't know how else to look at it other than the present and how it's affecting me and other people right now. And like how it's affecting me is like, you know, I get some gas rewards, but even with gas rewards, I'm still paying 50 to $60 more for gas um, every fill up than I was before. I don't even want to talk about the fact that the administration posts, look at all these states that are under four dollars in gas and under four dollars the entire northwest I wish. the entire northwest montana idaho wyoming the entire northwest and we're still like over five bucks here yeah i'm like this is crap this is actual crap this is a hate crime i don't like it here <laughs> but whoa <laughs> but you bring up a really good point too you know groceries I, suck you know i question how much is the potential recession that we might be on the course on course to going to be a mirage of sorts because the fear of recession is what's like the fear of recession is what led to Goldman Sachs and Apple announcing that with what they're seeing from the bear market, they don't think they're going to continue employing people at a high rate. Right now, the U.S. still has a historically low unemployment rate. Yeah. By most standards, I know it doesn't feel like it. The economy is in a decent spot. The economy is actually not bad outside of inflation. Yeah. So how much of how much of a potential recession is going to just be the idea of one where you start seeing these bigger markets say, well, we're pulling out, 
we're going to hunker down because we're going to brace for what we think is to come. And that potential bracement might just be what triggers a recession. Well, that's like the thing too, is like the Fed is actively contracting the economy because they believe that if they do that and unemployment goes up a little bit, then we're not going to have inflation anymore. That's not, I really like, I'm not an economist by any means. I refuse to believe that is the only actual viable option for this. Yeah, that's all um, the Fed can really do. Congress it, needs to do more. It's true. Yes, it is true. So the Fed is doing what they can to try to stop inflation. I think inflation is going to come down when we feel like it's going to come down collectively. So you're saying we all need to band together and stop buying food. Just stop believing. No, it's not even, <laughs> it's not about stopping buying things. It's just stopping believing that this is going to be our lives for the next few years. That's fair. I I think that like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like my grocery bills a lot. I try not to think about it. <laughs> Mine wasn't bad for this well, I month. Had a, I had I a big shot. weekend of restocking. So <laughs> I, you know, and I, I've started thinking about things like in town. I think about where can I get like the cheapest food yeah. and it's Chick-fil-A hands down. Oh, I thought you were going to say grocery outlet. And I'm like, please don't. Shop oh, there. I mean, I mean, for like if I want to go out for dinner, if I don't want to cook, uh, Chick-fil-A's are Prices almost haven't changed. It's still seven bucks for like fries and a, and a chicken sandwich. Okay. And then I went to <laughs> Vegas a couple weeks ago and I went to In-N-Out and their prices haven't changed. It's still five bucks for some fries and a, and a regular burger. So that was a nice surprise. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> anyways, like it's one of those things where I just, I'm not trying to invalidate anyone's like, if anyone's having a, like a tough time and I know there are people having a tough time in this environment. Absolutely. I just, I don't, I don't want to be gung ho about this recession thing because you know, the fed's going to keep doing what they're doing to try to get inflation down and it's either going to end up in a recession or it's really not. And I don't think we're, we know that. I don't think we know that even if some people already believe it. I don't think we know that even if some regions have indicators that there might be a little bit of a crash because yes, there can be crashes in regions and not the entire country. I mean, will the Fed's actions will inevitably slow the economy down, but I don't think that means we're in a recession. I don't think that means that our employment levels have to change that much. I don't think that means that um, our lives are going to be worse economically for a few years or for a year or two, however long this so-called recession might last. I just, I'm not convinced until it happens. So that's yeah. where I'm at. <laughs> I think that's fair. And I, I wish truly, cause I, I think I'm in a similar place as you where, and I think this is the struggle that a lot of Americans are feeling there. There's not a whole lot to do. And there was an article that just came out recently that was talking about how, Everyone thought this was an employee market, and now they're starting to realize, actually, it never really was. A lot of jobs opened up because of the Great Recession, but employers just got smarter at how to entice people to come without actually changing their cultures or providing more benefits. And now you're seeing a lot of buyer's remorse. That all aside, um, I, I, I struggle to and I hope that at some point we as a society recognize who are the power players here and 
instead of being angry at Joe Biden and saying, look at what he's done to our gas prices, we're angry and we're yelling at Congress and we're saying, look at what's happening because you won't give us a tax holiday or look at what's happening because you are so inactive because a lot of these problems, granted conservatives would lose their head here in this piece. A lot of these problems could have been managed by certain caps that Congress passed or starting up and having a more robust antitrust movement that allowed for these big companies that are starting to try to weather recession and tightening their prices to be broken up and allow us as consumers more options, giving more authority and power to the consumers bureau. Like there are so many actions that I can just think and rattle off right in this moment that we're having um, that I just wish Congress would do, but instead we're too busy worrying about whether or not the Fed's going to up their interest rate by a quarter of a percent, a full percent, two percent, and then seeing the repercussions and ramifications now that people can't buy houses, credit card payments are going up, all of these other spaces that are actually doing harm that we probably could have missed out on. But alas, America. Well, that's our show. Thank you for listening. I'm Caleb Smith. And I'm Terrell Couch. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. Thank you.